It is good to be with you this morning, worshiping together. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to open up with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, as we continue um, our series through the letter to the Hebrews. As you're finding that passage, Hebrews chapter 5, I want to remind us of the, the high Christology that we have seen through this letter to the Hebrews. Uh, when I say high Christology, I, I want to begin at the beginning in chapter 1 and let you hear again the description of our king. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the Lord Jesus whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The theme of what a great and glorious salvation runs throughout this letter that has been achieved by the eternal Son of God become flesh and dwelling amongst us. The author of this letter helps us see that Christ is superior. He is better. If you remember, he began by comparing Christ to angels in chapter 1. Christ is, is not an angel. He is not a created being. He is actually the creator of angels, Lord over angels. And then as the letter continues to move, we have a, a comparison between the leading figure of the Old Testament, Moses. And then Jesus is laid beside Moses, and we see, in a sense, the two covenants being held up before us, the Old Covenant and then the new and better covenant in Christ our King. So there's a comparison, and it's a comparison between good and better. Moses was a faithful servant in the house, we read in chapter 3. But Christ is the owner of the house. He is not a hired help. He is the Son of God. Moses was faithful. Christ is even more Christ is better. Look to Christ. He is where our, our, our gaze should be upon, the glory of the Son. The author then brings us to the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Compared to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, and we, are, we, we were introduced to this, and this, this theme actually runs for several chapters, the priesthood of Christ and again, it is to shine the light on the glory of the sun. And so as we look at chapter 5, with that in mind, please follow along as I read. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men 
in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset, beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hear the word of the Lord. Okay, so verses 1 through 4, we are introduced really to the, the order of the priesthood that was established in the Old Covenant. And so we're going to spend a few minutes um, getting acquainted with the, the Levitical priesthood. This was God appointed from the tribe of Levi, those who'd, who would serve as the representative, the, the mediator for the people. And hearing those words, a, a mediator or a representative, it should make us ask the question, why? Why did the people of Israel need a mediator? And this takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And this is really important as we begin to construct even answering that question of why was there appointed by God a man from the tribe of Levi to represent and mediate for the people of God. What we see, even in verse 1, is this idea that there is a man who is appointed to act on behalf. And when we look at the fall, we recognize that because of sin and because of God's holiness, there was a, a a breach in the fellowship, in the communion, in the intimacy between God and man. I want to draw your attention to Genesis 3.24. This is what it says. He drove out the man. So this is after Adam and Eve have sinned. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This this distance is, is to help us understand the reality of the seriousness of our sin and the holiness of God. So since the fall, there has been a separation between the Holy One and sinful people, sinful man. And that image of a cherubim guarding the way into, so to speak, the, the presence of, of God's abode, the, the garden where it was supposed to be with man, that separation is to forever help us understand the seriousness, the weightiness of our sin. 
the need for a mediator. There was no access through that cherubim outside of God, God's grace, God's provision. And so what we see in the Levitical priesthood is God's grace and mercy put on display that he has provided a way for those who are far off and have no right or business coming into the presence of God, having access to God. And so in order for, the, for him to be a mediator, we're told in our passage this morning that he must be a man. For every high priest chosen was from among men. And we also see that he must be appointed by God as the people's representative. That's important. It may just sound like, um, you know, kind of just the unfolding of instruction, but, but this appointing by God is, is crucial to keep in mind as we're working through the flow of this passage. It wasn't just a man of Israel who thought well of himself or thought highly of himself to the point where he's like, I can step into this. No, this was only by appointment from the sovereign God. So the high priest was able, as we continue to look through these verses, this high priest was able to, to empathize with the ignorance and waywardness of his people because he too was a finite man affected with those same weaknesses. He could deal gently and compassionately with their ignorant and wayward sinfulness because he himself understood it well. And, and as the verses unfold in verse 3, we see he knew it so well that because of this, he himself is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And so we see kind of the function of the Le 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 Levitical priesthood in these first few verses, the importance of the people having a mediator appointed by God who actually made it possible for sinful people to experience any interaction with a holy and right God. Now, this sets the stage. We mentioned this uh, previously, but it's good to, to hear it again. There was the Day of Atonement set aside annually where something very special happened with the high priest and his function on behalf of the people. And this description in verse 3 of him needing to offer sacrifices for himself, just as he does for the people, kind of introduce uh, this idea of the Day of Atonement and important for us to rehearse it just a bit. So it was the only time in the year that the high priest could actually enter into the, the heart of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the place where God himself was said to, to dwell in all of his holiness. It was a place where, if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was placed. It was situated in the Holy of Holies, this wooden chest containing the stone tablets, the very law of God. This was the scene in which the high priest was to enter once a year. But in order for him to do that, what we read in verse 3 is, is so important to understanding what, what actually happened during the Day of Atonement. First, he must slaughter a bull, sacrifice a bull for himself and his family. That was a crucial step in order for him to even begin the process of entering into the heart of the tabernacle. So first, the sacrifice of a bull on behalf of his own sin, then two goats 
And each of this is vitally important to understanding just how serious sin is. Two goats were also brought to the tabernacle to deal with the sins of the people. One goat was killed, and its blood was was taken in by the high priest and sprinkled on the mercy seat. This is really important. The, The literal translation is the place of propitiation, the mercy seat. This is where God's righteous wrath was actually appeased. So this, the blood of that first goat was brought in and sprinkled upon the mercy seat by the high priest who had first sacrificed a bull for himself, entering in to appease God's wrath, to be a propitiation for the sins of the people. And so because the punishment for sin, we hear in scripture very clearly, is death, The goat died as a representative of or a substitute for the people. All of this imagery and representation is so important because it is shadows pointing to the substance to come. The other goat, after they laid hands upon it, was was killed. I'm sorry, was not killed. Sorry, it was their hands were laid upon it and it was sent out into the wilderness. And this was to represent the fact that the sins of the people had been taken outside, had been taken away, away from them and away from a holy God who cannot tolerate sin at all. All of this pointing to the reality of just how much we have grieved a holy and righteous God, what our sins require, and the the way in which God has provided, provided a way for us to have our sins atoned for, to have his wrath appeased. But please remember this. This, of course, happened every year. This was not the final answer to the problem of uncleanliness before God. The day of atonement happened year after year after year. And so the sacrifices were accepted on the basis of their representation of the sign character, so to speak, because the author of Hebrews later tells us, this is important, Hebrews chapter 10, in reality that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so again, please hear me. This was important for the people to understand the promise of what was to come. The shadows given were to be fulfilled one day by the perfect spotless lamb, the sacrifice made once and for all for for the sins of God's people. And so it pointed to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is to set the stage in the first four verses of what's to come in, in explaining Jesus as even superior to Aaron as the great high priest. Jesus, the supreme high priest, went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, Not the earthly copy that we read about in the old, but the heavenly reality. He was able to enter the true holy of holies into heaven itself, opening up a way for us who are so undeserving into the very presence of God. Again, not because of the blood of bulls and goats, but because of his own blood being shed. So hear the the words of an old hymn, what can wash away my sin? The answer 
is clear and loud, nothing but the blood of Jesus. One author, I've, I've quoted him several times, his commentary in Hebrews is so good, Philip Hughes, just to get our minds thinking about what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, preparing for Calvary's cross. At Gethsemane and at Calvary, we see him, Jesus Christ, enduring our hell so that we might be set free to enter into his heaven. What a beautiful, glorious gospel that is offered to sinners like us. Christ endured our hell so that we might enter into his heaven. The eternal Son of God became flesh on a mission to save sinners. What a mighty Savior. When we get to verse 5 of our passage, we are introduced first to the similarity of Christ's high priesthood. Like the Levitical priesthood, Jesus did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but we are told very clearly he was appointed by God the Father. The Father chose and assigned him to this priestly task. Israel would have known that this appointment was, was and only could be made by God himself. And so even in the appointment of Christ as high priest, it validates that this is not man-made, but this is from God. This is his plan that his son would be the high priest, the glorious high priest. And so what we see in the similarity, we quickly begin to shift into what is, so there's continuity and then there's discontinuity, the differences, the superiority of Christ over the, the Levitical priesthood. Um, the first reason he has become, what we hear in this passage, the title of the sermon the first reason he has become for us the source of eternal salvation is in his unique priesthood. The unique priesthood of Jesus, which actually points to his infinite worth, his infinite value, what sets him apart as the great high priest. So in verse 5 and 6, we are told, uh, we are given two Old Testament quotations. The first one, Psalm 2-7 the second one comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. These two quotes really do actually help us see the uniqueness of this high priest and the infinite value, the treasure that he truly is. And so first, from Psalm 2-7, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Just as God had sent a greater prophet, in these last days you have heard from his very mouth, my son, just as God promised to send a greater prophet than Moses, so the Levitical priesthood pointed to someone greater. I, I want this to be grounded in scripture for you. We worked through 1 Samuel not too long ago as a church, and there was a, an, an unnamed man, prophet, who came to Eli and told him this, this prophecy. It's 1 Samuel 2.35. I want you to hear exactly what is said in God's word. And I will raise up for myself, this is God speaking, a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. 
I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before me or before my anointed forever. Forever. A high priest whose house will be sure and endure forever. Well, we know that the reason why there needed to be another Levitical priest raised up is because because of sin and death entering into the world, so uh, every man who lives and has breath in his lungs will one day die. And so there would be a need for another Levitical priest to be appointed by God. What we see here is this prophecy pointing to the one whose, whose anointing would go on forever. And so when we think about, you are my son, today I have begotten you, I want to clarify a few things. The experience of being begotten by the eternal Son of God has nothing to do with physical birth. So I want you to get that kind of thought process out of your mind when you hear, this is my Son, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Jesus was not a created being. He has eternally always existed. And so, this begotten has nothing to do with a physical birth. It does not refer to the conception in, in Mary's womb or apply to Jesus' birth in that little town of Bethlehem. It points, rather, to the glorious and visible vindication of Jesus as the Son. So, the, the day of his begetting was begotten or begetting was, was a way of describing Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. We know this because we see it in Scripture. So I don't want you to just go, well, Joel's up there saying this is why it means this. It is where we see in Scripture, like two examples, Acts 13 and Romans 1. So we know this to be true when Paul appeals to this passage and his explanation of it. So please hear Acts 13, 32 and 33 first. And we bring you... The good news that, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it was written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the resurrection, the raising of the son, is that, that connecting point with Psalm 2-7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so it is the, the glorious and visible vindication of who Christ really is. Romans 1, 3 through 4, 3 and 4. He, Jesus, was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Our great high priest is the Son of God who laid down his life as our substitute and was raised from the dead. The resurrection is, is that link, the, the linchpin that validates who Jesus says he was. God the Father raising the Son gloriously validates, vindicates everything that Jesus had said in his earthly ministry. All that the Old Testament had pointed to by raising him from the dead, the resurrection, is that final word from the Father, 
you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The second reason he has become the source of our eternal salvation is because of the everlasting component or reality of his priesthood. So we get this by looking at the second quote. In verse 6, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. What does Melchizedek have to do with the high priesthood of Jesus? Who is Melchizedek anyways? Melchizedek is a rare figure in the Old Testament. He appears in only two specific places. He's first introduced on the scene in Genesis, and then is not mentioned again until Psalm 110. So we first meet him in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. It's after Abraham had just returned from a victorious battle. And, and in Genesis, we get this description. First, he's identified as the king of Salem. King of Salem. Okay, that is a, a Gentile and pagan territory. And then Genesis identifies Melchizedek as a priest of God Most High. After that interesting episode, he really does completely drop off the scene until he is brought up again in Psalm 110, verse 4. And this psalm's immediate fulfillment happened in David's own kingship, but its ultimate fulfillment came later in David's line, in the one who sits at the Father's right hand, Jesus Christ. Given that Melchizedek seemingly has little to do with the messianic nature of this psalm, him being included in, in it, his name being mentioned, would probably, would have likely surprised even the original audience. Hearing him first in Genesis 14, and then again in Psalm 110, there would have been, there would have been clearly a surprise for the audience in trying to figure out what exactly this is all pointing to. This is something that I mentioned just a few minutes before, but other priesthoods had a termination date because all other priesthoods died. Death pre prevented them from serving on forever. And bringing in the order of Melchizedek is to emphasize this reality, the everlasting nature of Christ's priesthood. And so the uniqueness of his priesthood, which makes him infinitely value, valuable, and the reality that his priesthood goes on forever, helps the believers understand that this is actually an eternal salvation provided by our great high priest. And so by quoting these Old Testament scriptures that, that seem maybe somewhat obscure to us at this point in the letter to the Hebrews, is actually trying to hold out Christ in a manner that makes him who he really is. It shines light on his worthiness as our great high priest. What Melchizedek symbolized, Christ actually realized. He is the eternal high priest. Now, in verse 11, that we'll ho hopefully, Lord willing, get to soon, it says this, 
the author writes, about this, speaking about this Melchizedek that you may be really confused about at this point, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And so what he does is actually addresses this dullness of hearing, speaking another exhortation all through the chapter in chapter 6, and actually does not return again to address Melchizedek until chapter 7. And so we're going to have to wait a little bit to really dig into why it is that he was pulling from Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and describing in detail all the, the priesthood, the everlasting priesthood of Melchizedek. There is much to fill in, and it is, it is good, and it is, it is glorious, but it's going to have to wait. What I want to emphasize this morning is the uniqueness of his priesthood, and the eternality, the everlastingness of his, his priesthood. Think with me for a moment. If you th- we, we were encouraged in adult Sunday school um, through Acts 26 to really be thinking about evangelism. As, as the Apostle Paul had opportunities to speak about the hope that he, have, he had in Christ, Dennis did a great job of, of stirring us to be thinking about how we would share the gospel with those around us, and thinking in light of what we've just heard. To have a treasure of infinite worth is a glorious thing. But if you only get to experience that treasure for a little while and then it's taken away or it's gone, that's not as glorious as what we have in Christ. This uniqueness of his priesthood the one who has made a way for us to have a right relationship with God by by being a propitiation for our sins, appeasing God's wrath that is due on us. Because of this uniqueness of his priesthood, that treasure in and of itself is glorious. But without the reality of it being an everlasting priesthood, it may only be glorious for a time. And the Apostle Paul would talk to us and say, if this is, if this is only for here and now, we are to be pitied among, uh, among most in this world. If, if our hope is just kind of a temporary here and now hope and not a forever hope, then we of all people should be most pitied. But that's not the reality. So when you think about what you would share with an unbeliever of, of the hope that you have, keep these glorious truths in mind. You have a great high priest who is unique like no other priest that came before. He actually laid down his own life to become our substitute. Perfectly satisfying the Father on our behalf. And that glorious high priest who is the ultimate treasure is one that we have for eternity. His priesthood does not wane or it's here for a while and then gone tomorrow. It is an everlasting priesthood. And so our eternity is rooted and anchored on on one who will take us all the way through to the new heavens and the new earth. How glorious this reality is when we think about the hope that we have inside of us. Christ has become the source of eternal salvation because he is the unique high priest, infinitely valuable. He is the one and only son of God. And because his care and his ministry as our great high priest is never ending, 
we have so much confidence, so much hope, knowing that there is one who even now is ministering on our behalf. Sinclair Ferguson gives another helpful implication that follows this idea of the uniqueness of his priesthood and the everlasting nature of his priesthood that I thought was so good and wanted to share. Here is the implication that he shares. My security as a Christian does not reside in the strength of my faith, but in the indestructibility of my Savior. This is a glorious implication. My security does not reside in the strength of my faith, but in the indestructibility of my Savior. How much I need to learn again and again the basic principle that I must walk in Christ in the same way that I received Christ. That's Colossians 2.6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Not depending on anything that resides in me, but on everything that is mine in him. He goes on to say, The Reformed Fathers and Masters of Spiritual Counsel used to say wisely that the weakest faith gets the same strong Christ as does the strongest faith. Brothers and sisters, that is, that is infused with so much encouragement. The weakest faith gets the same strong Christ as the strongest faith. And then lastly, what I want us to see in this passage actually looks at the last several verses, 7 through 10, the perfect perseverance of this great high priest. In the days of his flesh, verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Just for a moment, I want to take you back to chapter 2 because something very similar is said there in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The founder of their salvation was made perfect through suffering. That's what we see in chapter 2. And in our passage, being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation. Same idea or concept being communicated. Perfection, perfection that only one, the eternal Son of God, is able to, to, to accomplish or to, to be or make a reality is a prominent theme in Hebrews. Being made perfect is employing the sense of consecration or ordination to the priestly office. So in no way are we saying that somehow he was um, unperfect and became perfect. It's actually conveying the idea of consecration or ordination to his priestly office. So when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus underwent this consecration to his priesthood, not through the external rituals of washing and anointing or sacrifices being made on his own behalf, but through his lifelong obedience 
to the will of God amidst trials and suffering of various kinds and ultimately climaxing in his death. That is the being made perfect by his life, enduring all the hardship while obeying the Father's will perfectly all the way to the cross was that, that, um, that consecration or ordination to the name the, high, the great high priest or the title the great high priest. And here's something to think about. Did this come automatically? Well, no. In verse 7, it says that he prayed for and begged for and cried out and wept with tears. And this, this was not a fake kind of testing, but of Christ's perseverance and complete obedience to the Father. And it, it didn't just happen one time, but it says days. This was his life as he endured all of this. Everything in the universe hung on this testing of the Lord Jesus. And so it wasn't brief, and it did not come automatically. Not just a day, but during all the days of his ministry, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And it was not this brief one moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, although I think this kind of points to what happened there. It's much larger than that. All the days of his life and ministry, it was a lifetime of warfare against temptation. And at the resurrection, the Father validated all that the Son had done. He heard the Son's cries. And because of his reverence, because of Christ's life of obedience, the Father validated, vindicated, he is my Son. He is the great high priest. With all of that in mind, this again, we, we should not lose sight of, of a major theme that's been running through Hebrews, this exhortation to persevere, to hold fast to our confession. We are in need of endurance in this pilgrimage of life here on earth as we seek ourselves to do the Father's will, and we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is what we hear throughout this letter to the Hebrews. And if you are like me, you feel the heat. You, you experience the obstacles. You encounter the difficulties along the way. And at times, it seems like that finish line is impossible. It is too far away. It is beyond my grasp. It is in those moments, and I want to quote Sinclair again, that we need to look to Christ's perseverance. Now, as those who hold to the Reformed faith, the doctrines of grace, the perseverance of the saints is a, is a glorious truth, a glorious doctrine, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion upon the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who has called us, he is the one who holds us and will bring us to the end. If in any way, shape, or form, you somehow remove the perseverance of the saints into your own kind of willing and doing, you have lost sight that the perseverance of Jesus is of what's most important. This is what he says. This is why the perseverance of Jesus is, a, is a, an even more important biblical truth than the perseverance of the saints, because he is the one who endured all the way to the end, perfectly obeying the Father through all the temptations. And by faith, we are united with him. We cling to his perseverance to give us hope for our perseverance. Because he has faithfully endured all the way to the end, 
and the Father raised him from the dead, which was that validation. That is where our hope is secure, that we will persevere to the end because of what our King and our Lord and our high priest endured and overcame. We can securely, by faith, run to him, depend upon him, trust in him to to get us through, to help us to that finish line. I want to read again from a, a hymn. He will hold me fast. Hear just a few of the lyrics. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love often cold, he He, the whole thing is, he must hold me fast. In closing, I don't want us to miss another important reality or truth that is presented to us in this passage. In verse 9, as we look at this eternal salvation that Jesus has secured, I don't want you to miss this part of the verse. It is granted only to those who obey him. It is fitting that the one who learns obedience through what he suffered would stand as the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. One thing is very clear from this letter to the Hebrews. The will of Christ, the will of Christ that he be obeyed is of first most importance or foremost importance. The command to trust him, to hold fast our hope, to guard against a heart of unbelief, to hold fast to our confession. All of that is found in the first few chapters of Hebrews and to draw near to Christ for help. All other obedience is the fruit of this first act of obedience. And so when you hear that he has offered eternal salvation to those who obey, please do not hear me say that this is somehow a works-based salvation. You could easily get confused there. Okay, I'm seeing that obedience is a crucial importance or point or aspect of this eternal salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We hold, we stake our claim, our lives upon that glorious truth, that we are justified by faith not by works, so that no one may boast. It is a gift from God. So, so what is he saying here? Well, what we have seen from the, the Israelites in the wilderness that did not enter into God's rest, very clearly, verse 19 of chapter 3, it was because of disbelief or unbelief. So if we are to experience life and life abundance in Christ, this is the obedience that he calls for. Trust me. Believe in me. Place your life in my hands. It is a daily trusting in Christ, being secure in his work and not your own. And then the outflow of that life is a life of obedience. Amen. He has given us his law. Christ even tells us in John's gospel, if you love me, you will obey my commands. But please do not get that order mixed up that somehow this this obedience infuses some type of works-based righteousness into the equation. No, no, no. Christ has accomplished 
all that is needed for sinners to experience their, their sins forgiven and the gift of eternal life. But when you hear this, this call for obedience, it is also a beautiful reality that what our call is in response to the gospel is to repent and to believe, to trust him with all of our life. When we say Christ is our Lord and our Savior, you need to understand the comprehensive nature of that. You not, no longer have any rights or claim to yourself. You are saying every bit of me, every sphere of me, every pocket that I may think will stay in the dark and is still kind of my little, my little kingdom. No, all of that is being laid down before his feet. And he is the one ruling and reigning on your heart. He is now your king and your Lord and your savior. All of your life is submitting to the lordship and kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, the outworking of that is, yes, a life that says, if you have commanded me, Lord, I will obey. But that is, that is not the order in which someone comes to salvation in Christ. Because we have all miserably broken God's law and fallen short of his glory. And only by the work of our perfect high priest can any of us experience that that separation that was once there, a, a fellowship, a, a, a coming uh, into right relationship with a holy and right God. And so it leaves us with just a few questions. If you're here this morning and you are outside of Christ, do you even understand this eternal salvation that is being offered? Not everyone does. Do you have this eternal salvation? Are you obeying Christ? Are you living in disobedience to his will? You cannot live in disobedience to his will and then out of the other corner of your mouth profess him as your Lord and Savior. Those who love Christ, they, they run to Calvary's cross again and again for their justification, but they don't discount his law and his righteousness as the framework in which we live this life. We are not... Antinomian is, antinomians. We, d we, don't, we are not against God's law. We actually see God's law as a beautiful outworking of, of his righteous rule and reign in our lives. And so in all of this, both for believers and unbelievers, this is also a theme. In Hebrews 3.1, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus this morning, our great high priest. The verb consider implies giving detailed attention to something. If you're like me, you are capable of giving detailed attention to almost anything and everything. A basketball game, social media, new clothes, our appearance, maybe it's your school studies. We consider many things. Often, sadly, with one exception, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews, this letter, this glorious book teaches us that we must reverse that trend. More than that, we must engage in reversing that trend by showing, showing ourselves, showing each other just how captivating Christ really is. I pray this morning that we would be captivated by him, for he is a great high priest and his, his love, his reign lasts forever. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for this great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We in Christ have a unique high priest 
of infinite value, of infinite worth. God, may this be the day where we see that anew, that we walked, walk out of this sanctuary forever changed with our eyes fixed upon our infinite, glorious Savior. And we have in Christ a treasure that lasts forever. May the reality of eternity impact and affect our present. God, we, we, we confess that we so often get, get distracted, get focused on the here and now and lose sight of that eternal perspective. And may this be this, this day where we are, are capti captivated once again by the uniqueness of our high priest, the, the eternity of his reign as our high priest. And Lord, I pray that that would bring much encouragement to us as your people, as we are considering who he is and striving to, to walk in a manner that is pleasing, to, to hold fast our confession, we are in need, by the help of the Spirit, to apply these truths to our lives, apply them to our minds and to our hearts, meditate upon them, and glory in our Redeemer. We pray that that would be so in our lives this day. In Christ's name, amen.